Hello, you are at the net. Welcome to another episode of At the Net podcast brought to you by Texmex Productions. Twisting and tweaking the dials are our producers, D-Mac and Dave the Brain. Join me in welcoming your hosts, Craig Bell and AJ Shabria, who are about to take us through five sets of talking tennis, all that applies and maybe even life as it seems to them. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig Bell and AJ. Thanks to our Ethernet podcast girl for that fabulous introduction. Welcome fans, it's a great game. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 18 of Afternet Podcast with AJC and CD1. We are talking the great game of tennis as it seems to us. us. Plus, thanks also go out to our good amigos at Tex-Mex Productions. That would be Darian D-Mac McBrayer and Dave the Brain DeLeo from Back of the House who are on the soundboards moving the dials and buttons to make us sound like real people. We're real people tonight, aren't we? Gosh, I hope so. Yeah, we're, we're live, not Memorex. Lastly, be sure to check out our good work on SoundCloud, Fireside, Spotify, iTunes, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, all the important communication sites. All that of you, them. All of them. Yeah. You kids find popular. And if you're female, sorry guys, I would like to read the opening intro for At The Net Podcast and be an At The Net Girl. Let us know. We're always looking for new female voices to do the intro, even in a foreign language. Ooh la la. Yeah. I might that's add. Right. All so, right. A little Francais from uh, CB1 there. That's right. Yeah. Well, we're, we are privileged to have the great Rick Meyer yes. at the net with us this yes. evening, Sunday night. You know, what a better better guest than Rick Meyer, right? No, this is the best. It's so cool. Right. Great yeah. to be here with you guys. Uh, Thank you, Rick. Yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, for those of you, uh, a little bit of background on Rick. He played on the Pro Tour for 10 years. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah. Got a long time out here. All the slams reached the, the round of 16 at the Australian Open in 83 and third round at the U.S. Open in 80, losing to Johnny Mack, somebody that probably Rick probably grew up playing tennis with. Tough four-setter. Yeah. Uh, Rick also won some singles and doubles titles, had wins over a lot of the top 15 players, including Ilya Nastasi. So we'll have to get to this twice, not once, but twice. Uh, Panada, uh, Feedback, Scanlon. Oh, wow, the guy that had the golden set. Yes, he, Billy Scanlon right, from Dallas, Texas. Right. Uh, Johan Creek, who we Johan just talked about. Johan Creek, friend of the show. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Dick Stockton, Hank Fister, uh, Mr. Cox. Mark Mr. Cox and Mark Roger Cox, Taylor. Roger Taylor. Played doubles with Lindell, Gerolitis, Newcomb, wow. McMillan, Mayotte, and Jay Lapidus. Is it Lapidus? Lapidus. Ricky, we pronounced that. Jay Sorry, could you repeat that? Yep. Jay Lapidus. 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 That's there how you, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You said that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So Rick's originally from uh, Great Neck, New York. Played on the Great Neck North High School team with the great Mike Fishback of Double Strung Racket fame. We, we want to talk about that. That's right. We want to learn. Yeah, and then went on to play at the University of Penn. Pretty smart guy there in the Ivy League, graduating there, and played on the team was was team captain. So that's yeah. a little bit about our, our guest uh, Rick Meyer. Rick, thanks a lot like, once again for you know coming up with us uh, at, at the net, right? Yeah. On a little Sunday night action. Well, the, our first question is, and I think this is kind of interesting, because we're from Texas, and there's another guy named Rick Myers, who's plural, and you're Rick Myers singular. Did you all ever get confused? You all were playing about the same time on the tour as well, weren't you? Yeah, we're, we're good friends. He's Rick Myers. He has an F. Mine is an M-E-Y-E-R. One he's letter. We're at the same age. Did you all ever get confused on the tour? Did, any, did you, uh, like I said, uh, Rick Meyer, come to the tournament desk, and both of you show up? Because we know Rick Myers also. Yeah, yeah. we do him down here. And yes. he's an Abilene. He's a great guy. Terrific guy. 
Yeah. You're involved with the Texas section also. Yeah, Definitely. He yeah, he, he's a super nice guy, good player, you know, like yourself. Uh, did a lot of the Grand Slams, was, uh, you know, a, a local uh, Texas legend as well. Saw him a couple of weeks ago at the Hall of Fame banquet. Nice guy. I told him we were going to be speaking with you. Months ago, he's on the Texas, some sectional thing that he does there for the section. I started getting these emails from the section, and yeah. they got mixed up, so they were sending me all these emails that they thought were supposed to go to him. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your, your background growing up in New York. Did you uh, come from a tennis-playing family? Did uh, your mom and dad get you involved? Kind of what, what uh, started you on this process in the great game? Uh, my father was a club player. As we said, he had a great backhand and a, and a forehand that was a work in progress. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was a good player. He was a doctor. And... He was at, in 1962, he went to, and my, he and my mother went to the Zorado Beach Hotel in Puerto Rico around Christmas time for a holiday, and that's where they met the pro there, who was Nick Boletari. Nick Boletari, 1962? At the same time, a fellow named Hyde Zastner was there and met Nick, and when Nick came in that summer in 63, Nick would come to the Nassau Country Club and be the pro there in Glen Cove, New York, mm -hmm. which had grass used to run the East Court. That was part of the East Coast grass court circuit in those days. So I took my first lesson, my brother and I, from Nick that summer. We took two lessons a week, Wednesday and Sundays. And there was another fellow who Nick was coaching at the time. You might remember the name. A few years older than me, and that was Brian Gottfried. Oh, great. Great name. Yeah. Not, not a bad player in his own right, too. Yeah, so Nick started me that summer. Then Nick then went back to Puerto Rico, and my father was believed, you know, you got to take lessons from someone who was good, and he hooked us up with John O'Grady, who was one of the top pros in the area. O'Grady taught Holmberg, who was a great player. He taught sure. Fitzgibbons. He taught the Gangler Girls. He taught the Tennies. And we were lucky enough to start taking lessons from him. And every Friday for five years, my father would drive us from Great Neck about a half an hour to Glen Cove, and we'd have a half an hour lesson with O'Grady. And he really gave us a method to play tennis. He was a great teacher. Interesting. Yes, yeah. he, he, he was, uh, how long did you do that for a couple of years, did you say? Five years. Five years. Wow, that's a, quite a commitment. Your dad uh, really wanted you to play tennis then. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, he just wanted us to learn the right way. He believed that whatever you did in life, whether it was musical instrument, whether it was sports, you, you had a teacher who taught you the right way to do it. You didn't develop bad habits. You got good habits right from the start. That was his thinking. So did, did, you, did, did you go on and start playing junior tournaments, national tournaments, that kind of stuff? Or did you all... A little bit later, after you took lessons? I started with O'Grady when I was about nine. And then when I was about 12, he said, you know, to my father, what are the boys doing this summer? And we weren't going to camp, away to camp. So he said, be around. He said, why don't you enter some tournaments? So I started playing in the 12s and unders. And I was ranked fifth in the East that year and single, second and doubles. So I had some success at it right away. And, you know, kids have a barometer. To the left is something you don't like it, don't want to do it anymore. To the right, oh, this is fun. I want to keep doing this. And it was fun. I said, this is fun. So I kept doing it. And then after O'Grady, I went on to Warren Woodcock, who was the pro at Forest Hills. And Peter's mm -hmm. Fleming and I all took lessons from Warren. He was a great pro. This was probably in the early 70s at, the, at this late, point? Late, late, late 60s? 60s Late 60s, yeah. okay, so a little bit before the tennis boom actually started, because you were born in 55, is that correct, 1955? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay, exactly. Okay, yeah, that's what I was trying to kind of yeah, put a time frame together. Yeah. yeah, so you're just pre-tennis boom. Could you kind of feel tennis was starting to move at that point, because that, that was the early day probably of, of television. Could you feel like that the uh, tennis was starting to go somewhere, or, or not really at this point yet? You know, it was starting, it was on television, and, you know, at that point, the kids in Florida, California, Texas had the upper hand on the kids' knees because they could play every day because they had good weather. 
the kids at the East were you know, sort of behind the eight ball. And then the thing that changed it was High Zasner eventually built the Fort Washington Tennis Academy for yeah. big volunteering. I, I, rem I remember that name because he directed all the tournaments uh, at Port. Right, right. High was in the real estate business. He was also in the cheese business, very wealthy guy in the cheese business. And he mm. built this tennis academy that was non-profit. And Nick was the head guy. It was his dream to have an academy. After two years, he and Nick didn't sort Let's say they saw it differently. <laughs> he showed Nick the exit door. <laughs> oh, really? Interesting. So Nick okay. was gone. And so he said, okay, we have this academy. Who's the best coach in the world? And people said, well, if you look at the whole world at that time, best coach in the world was Harry Hopkins in Australia. 25 years of success coaching the Davis Cup team. Unbelievable success from Sedgman to Rosewald to Ho, Newcomb, Roach, Anderson. You know, one after another, you go look at the records. So, he, you know, his main job was a newspaper guy in Australia. Then he coached the Davis Cup. And, you know, they weren't paying him much to do any of that. So... I was asked to pay them with Mickey Mantle in the 1964, and for that amount of money, he got on a plane and came to Port Washington. He did it. It was a guaranteed six-figure kind of a contract, huh? Exactly. Yeah. He'd never made that type of money before, so here he came to Port Washington, and suddenly we had the best coach in the world, all these courts, and the deal was that if you played for the whole program with Harry, either Friday night or Saturday night for two hours, then you could come after school every day for free and play from three to six. Wow. And that changed American tennis because suddenly the kids in the East could compete with kids from Florida. Sure. And, you know, like they say, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. New York's a tough market. So the kids who came out of New York were pretty tough because yeah. it's, a tough place to, it's a tough place to compete, whether it's business, tennis, whatever it is. So you were seeing the likes of John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolitis, were they all yeah. Mary Carrillo? Yeah. At Port of time, it was Vitas who was a year older than me. Peter Fleming was my year. Mac was three years younger. Michael Grant was in the top 100, Eric Fromm made it in the top 100. Eric Fromm, I remember him, Jimmy yeah. Jimmy Peter Renard. So that was just at Port. But then also in the same area, you had Michael Fishback, whose father was a pro tour, and Mike would you know, come in and at times play with us or practice with us. Jeannie and Sandy Mayer were there. Jeannie ended up at three in the world, Sandy at eight. You had Dickie Stockton was from the area. Whenever he was back home from Texas, he'd come in and play. And then all the older generation would come in and play with the younger guys, too, at times. So tennis really became this... Unbelievable Eastern tennis. Kids would come from hours away to play in this program with Hopman. So every top kid played together. It was, it was an incredible situation. And what happened was that all, those, all the guys I mentioned to you in the top 100, East has never had that many guys in the top 100 before that or after that. East always had great players. Savin was one women in a 51. Holmberg, Pete Laver got to the semis of Forest Hills in 58. So they're always talented East, yeah. but not in these numbers. And it was because Hopman set the tone there. It was an unbelievable time period in Eastern tennis. Uh, and I was just lucky it was when I was coming up, it was a great opportunity. So you got me got me thinking that can can you recreate that again? I know John's got his own tennis academy back back east up up in uh, Long Island. Randall's Island. Yeah. Randall's Island. Can can he is he I trying to do here's what happened. When Hopman left and went to Florida, all the other clubs around the east said, Hey, I can have a junior program. Sure. And they used to take their best kids, they wouldn't send them to Fort Washington's anymore, they keep them trying to develop their own programs. Ah, so you never again had all the top kids playing under one roof. Same place, yeah. You know, the latter of Port Washington was tougher than any Eastern tournament because you couldn't, you know, stay out of it. If you were in the latter and you got a challenge, Harry said you got a week to ten days to play it. Unless you're dead, sick, or in the hospital, you got to play that match. You lose your spot. Interesting. So Incredibly competitive. Just dog eat dog. It sounded like good rules. Yeah, but it made kids tough, and you learned you have to play matches. You learned how to compete. Right. Yeah. That's that sounds like the perfect breeding ground for success. Yeah. Yeah. Th that and like that, you said, lots of. The thing that made it great for Eastern tennis was that. 
We all had our own throws who taught us the game, who, were, uh, who taught us how to hit the ball. Hoppin was a great coach. He was not a great teacher. He didn't teach you strokes, not mm-hmm. it, like a Landsdorf or a mayor and a great. Sure. But he was a great coach, and the combination is why you had a great situation. And he was all about, more about fitness. Fitness, for sure. Right? He was, he was yeah. a fitness guy. He was way ahead of the curve. I mean, he had guys in Australia you know, doing knee jumps, lifting weights. No one else in the world was doing this stuff. And we started doing this. We started passing the kids in the East, in California, Florida, rather, because you know, we're in better shape than most of them. So did you have people coming maybe from a California go, hey, what's going on here? Did you ever have anybody just happen to no. come in on the plane no. and go, no, no, okay. No. N- nothing, nothing that... Uh, I mean, some other places suddenly come and showing up Fort Washington. It was all Eastern kids. I remember Fort Washington. Oh, from, of course. From, from, from Oklahoma, I'm from Oklahoma, and I remember always the Fort Washington Tennis Academy. Remember the great Harry Hoffman, sure. the name, but, you know, Oklahoma City didn't have a Fort Washington Tennis uh, Academy. Right. No, no, it was a unique situation because he was a guy, think about it, most of the places that it, are done to make money. Jackson, this was a non-profit. He wasn't in it to make money. He was a millionaire for the cheese business. He didn't need the money. He, he, he the just money. did it for the goodness of the game. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and for the local area, helping kids. You know, he gave scholarships to kids who couldn't afford it. So it was an unbelievable place. And, and, did a great thing. and as, I re- as I recall, tons of courts, outdoor hard courts, some indoor clay, some indoor hard. And you grew up kind of like a European where you had... Uh, to learn both styles of tennis, the attacking and the spinning clay game, too. Yeah, that was true. But, and the thing was, you know, most of us were brought up in the East on clay. And in those days, there was red clay that were very slow, like Paris. So mm. all of us, even guys like Mac, myself, who were serving volleys and Vitas, you learned how to construct points, you learned how to passing shots, because you really, and you learned how to mark points on serves, you're going to serve in volley. It was much better learning on, on, on clay. It really taught you how to play the game, which was important. That's why you saw these results. And you see guys, you know, Mac was in the finals of the French. Beatus was in the finals of the French, you know, from the East. Great yeah. results from these guys. So, so you spent, how many years did you spend at Port Washington? Most of the rest of your junior career then till college? Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was, let's see. It was about, about five, five years, five, five to six years there with Hoffman. So you had some success, you know, in juniors, and then went on to to play at University of Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, Ivy League school. Yeah, how'd that happen? How'd, how'd you get recruited to go there, or did you recruit yourself to go there? Uh, no, I mean, I was second in the East behind Jeannie Mayer, second in John Columbia, so I was a top player in the East, one of the top in the country. I was in the Junior Davis Cup team, so, you know, I, I got recruiting letters, you know, thousands of letters all the time, guys who go for your scholarship, whether it was anywhere in the country, you know, most schools, they wanted top players. Uh, I wanted to go to an undergraduate business school. Ten hours, he had a great business school, the Wharton School. And I, mean, I looked at other schools, considered other places, and it just ended up that Penn was the right place for me, and it turned out to be great. Yeah, yeah it sounds, sounds like it. Uh, let, me, let me back up just real quick. So yeah. You played some high school tennis with Mike Fishback. Yes. Right? So I want to know about that. Was he using the double string at the time, <laughs> or what, was he just using a no, regular no, no, racket? Actually, he didn't use a double string until 1977. So, uh, so after high school. He graduated high school in 72, so it was years later that that, that, that came about. Right. But he was a great junior. You know, he played two hands off both sides. Right, yeah. And he, was a... he, could, he, could, he could flick the wrist on both sides, huh? Yeah, no, he was a great junior and great competitor, too. <laughs> Unbelievable tennis head. You said his dad was a tennis local teaching pro? Yeah, Joe, Joe played at Forest Hills in, in the 40s. Oh, really? look at the record, you'll see Joe Fishback. He was a very good player. Interesting. Okay. Did he go to Port Washington with you guys, or did he kind of hang mostly with his dad then? He mostly, his father had his own indoor courts and great things, so he played there a lot. But, you know, 
all of his needs were played, you know, whether it was with somebody he played, if not at Port, you know, locally, great mix. So he was in the mix. He and Jeannie Mayer were very good friends. So we all played together at different times, whether mm. it was the summer or winter. So we benefited from that. He and Jeannie Mayer <laughs> both did the two-handed forehand. Yeah, yep. Then, uh, so then off after uh, you have, have a, this, this great degree from, from Penn, you decided, oh, let me put that on hold for a little bit and let's go on the tour and see what I got? Or did that, uh, were, you, were you thinking about doing the tour for 10 years or mostly you didn't know what to do and just kind of like, okay? No, I didn't know how long. I had a good friend at, at Penn, the indoor courts at Penn were named, the Bob Levy indoor courts, and Bob was a good friend. And he, when I was graduating, he said, you know, your mother wants you to go to law school, business school. He said, you can do that later. You can't play tennis later on. Why don't you see how good you can get and why don't you give it a shot? Sure. And, you know, that sounded pretty good, so I started him. I didn't know how long it was going to go on, but you know, it ended up being a long time. It worked out quite well. Yeah, 10, ten years. I mean, you, you saw all the all the tournaments. Do you have a favorite tournament that you played at? or Do you like the, the, all, all of them, or was there one in particular that stood out? Well, I think for any tennis player... The number one place is Wimbledon. Just like I think if you ask any golfer, the number one place would be the Masters. The special place, sure. Augusta, Georgia. Yeah, the special and, and Wimbledon was special. For me, also the U.S. Open was special because it was home. So I had mm. friends and family around. So that was always you know a great time. Uh, I'd say other great tournaments around the world were you know Alan King ran one in Vegas. The Alan King Classic. That was an sure. incredible week for the players. Yeah. Stockholm was always a great place. Stockholm, Sweden. Th that was actually yeah. Johan Creek's answer also is the Alan King Classic. He, he liked in, that uh, one, yes. He, he said that yeah. he really enjoyed uh, playing in Vegas. What was interesting about Vegas, the times I played it, Alan would have a pro-celebrity tournament the weekend before. So first time I played it, my partner, and he had his partner for the whole day, was uh, Rayford Johnson, the Olympic gold medalist. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember Rayford. Yeah. Yes. So we're playing, we're playing doubles, we're playing against Borg and his partner, and Bjorn has this drop shot, um, both behind the baseline, I, I couldn't get it, I see Rafer take off, I never saw a human go from zero to 60, as fast as that guy, <laughs> <laughs> he was an unbelievable athlete. You got there, had a cup of coffee, and, and it went, oh, okay, I got this. <laughs> exactly, so that was the first, he was just a great human being, so I spent the day with him, that was interesting, the following year. My partner for the day was Walter Cronkite. Wow. Interesting. And that, was, just, that was unbelievable because he was a guy, this is, you know, before the internet, before yeah. cell phones. He had a, and the world was, in those days, the world was big. These things that went on around the world, you know, these phones in here for days, weeks, or months. He had a window to the world that was unbelievable. To, and to listen to him, things he spouted were incredible that day. So mm. that was an incredible experience. That's, so the tour was great in itself, but then this, this weekend experience before was also great about the Allen King tournament. So, so, so what was Walter? Was he a B player? You know, was he a 3-0, 3-5? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, about a 3-5, but 4 at best. But, but a 10-0 interest-wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sit there talking to this guy, uh, mesmerizing. Living on a scale of 10. Right. Yeah, and then, uh, so tell us a little bit about, about uh, playing Illy. You know, how, yeah. how, how'd, you, how'd you get his number? Did you figure him out, or did you just try to drive him nuts? Or I mean, he went nuts anyway all the time, so it probably didn't take too much to get him going. Well, here was a strategy. I'm playing Illy. He's won Barcelona on grass. He's won the French on clay, the Italian on clay, the Masters five times. So I figured the longer the ball's in play, the less chance I have of winning the point. Sure. So you kept the points very short against Nastasi. Right. And, and he's the type of guy who like to work the point, move you around, you know, jerk you around, and so down. So, and it was an indoor court, so it was fast. So I'm, I was serving a volley every point. And it was one of those weeks where... You know, I was just in the zone because I'd gone from the qualifying, 
into the tournament. But I think I told Mr. AJ that I lost in the last round of the qualifying of that tournament, so I wasn't in the tournament. But, you know, I was the highest-ranked player of the lucky of the four who lost in the last round. So if someone didn't show up, I'd get into the tournament as a lucky loser. And Ismail El Shafei didn't show up, so I got in as a lucky loser. Izzy El Shafei, famous, uh, famous, beautiful player he was. Yeah. Egyptian tennis player. He was a great player. Yeah. So Egyptian. I got in. Egyptian. Egyptian. Beat Scanlon, beat another player, and then I played Italy in the semis. And, it was, again, it was one of those weeks where I just was in the zone serving. I could just hit the corners all day. It was just... You just had that feel in the hands. I'm sure you guys know what that feels like at times. Of course. Um, and, and on the other side of the draw, Johan, who did he beat in the other semi to get to his first final? It was Manolo uh, Oh, that's right. The Spaniard. Orantes. The lefty. Yeah, 75 Four Sales champ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I was serving a volley. I just want to make the point short. Won the first set, lost the second. There was a tight in the third set. And the funny incident happened there. I hit a serve point, I hit a volley, Lineman calls it in, the guy in the chair calls it in, and his Nazi said it was out, he was pissed. So we're changing sides, and he goes up to the linesman, and he tells him, you're in it, this, that, and then he goes, F you to the guy, and the guy, Lineman goes, Mr. Nastasi, that will be a $250 fine. So he sits down, I sit down, and he waits that 20 seconds, he gets up and he goes, let's make that an even $1,000, F you, F you. <laughs> so he said it. So he said whatever he said three more times. Right, and I'm sitting with a towel on my face, laughing. This guy's throwing my money like it's water. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> the other thing was there were no super reps at this time. Yeah. So if there had been a super rep, he would have been thrown out, defaulted right on the spot. You yeah. can't do that to a ref today. No. Oh. But there were no super reps. And the other thing is you realize that the guy in the chair is hired by the by the tournament to be the to be the umpire. If he had defaulted the Stasi, there's no way he's coming back next year to get paid to do this. So he couldn't default him. And, and none of the guys there at any time would default McEnroe, Connors, you know, the Stasi when they were carrying on because they were getting paid by the tournament directors. That's all changed now. I mean, you have super reps. Yeah. The guys in the chair are not paid by any tournament directors, so it's totally changed. But this was the Wild West then. Sure. And, and back in the Wild West, I'm sure they were pretty happy about that free thousand bucks from a big name, right? <laughs> so, so were you just sitting there watching this kind of like okay hey this is going to be this is good good for me because he, he's getting agitated the more agitated he gets probably exactly unlike exactly. McEnroe you know, the role of your play the guy you're playing gets really angry and affects his play so you know I th now Mac did that I think Mac did that to fire himself up I don't know if Nastasi could control that anger it just seems like he played differently when he got mad now McEnroe when he got mad he played better it seems he like he played great yeah and Matt could turn it off. You, know, you could, could, deep, you could compartmentalize, compartmentalize things that other players couldn't. And he just, you know, like, once he went back to playing, he had the yelling and screaming. He could focus in. Yeah, Matt was amazing that he could come right back to playing no matter what, whether it was a minute or five minutes, whatever. Mm. I know you said you were a couple of years older than him. Did, did he do that at Port Washington, though? Was he a little uh, kid with fuzzy, a lot of fuzzy mm -hmm. hair and, and uh, curly hair, you know, throwing rackets and yelling, you can't be serious? Yeah. <laughs> no, Port Washington never did that. Oh, he, no one carried on. But Harry ran the place, he didn't carry on, and he got thrown out. Okay, so you, you couldn't do those shenanigans, you know. No, no, no. Yeah, but this is practice. Those weren't matches. Sure. Yeah, okay, right. In the challenge matches, you couldn't do it anyway. If you did it, the carry would throw you out. So, no, there was no mm. carrying on there. Okay. Yeah, I didn't mm. know if, when he started really doing that. That must have been, must have been more in college or at other tournaments or things like that, maybe on down the road, sounds like. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was sitting here looking at uh, your career a little bit on online, and noticed that uh, you, know, you had a ten-year career, and and the money 
let's say is a little bit better than what you probably earned in, in the 10 years, right? Is that correct? Say that, sorry, say that again? I said the money earned in, in a 10-year career back in the late 70s, early 80s is a lot different than the money earned these days, would you say? Oh, my God, it's unbelievable. It's unreal. You made 125,064. I guarantee you to make 20 million this last year. <laughs> yeah, and like Ash Barty won that... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. That WTA finals. Winning the women's finals, you know, unbelievable. Four point something mil. Four and a half, I think, yeah. is what, what she ended up with. That, six point four. Yeah, six, six million. Right. That's a lot of cheese. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a lot of money that uh, these yeah. guys are making these days versus, comparatively speaking, to yeah. we're all kind of in the same age group that. Uh, relatively the wild west like what you were saying and you know a couple of hundred bucks here and a couple of hundred bucks there yeah yeah i mean that's it's it's nice to see tennis go to where it is today but at the same time you know you feel bad what would have rod laver been worth you know in money you know would he have blown what in today's money would he have blown the, the you know the 40 50 million dollar a year mark or you know it, it I, I don't it's hard to, to imagine if he was playing, playing now. right now, you know, to win two Grand Slams, uh, you know, and be able to to do what he uh, created mm -hmm. uh, in, in yeah, his no, time frame, it would have been unbelievable. Sure, no doubt about it. You know, yeah. times have changed. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Right now, did you did you played uh, Johnny Mack at the U.S. Open, right? Yeah, we played in the third round uh, of the Open. Yes, 1980 Open. In London, a few weeks later. And what was that like playing Johnny Mack in, in, at both of your home turf? And I'm sure the crowd was a little uh, raucous, maybe, for both of you. Both New Yorkers, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it was a great crowd. A lot of friends there. And it was in the grandstand court, which was the, the best court there, because it was a very intimate court. It was like the crowd was on copies. So that was a great court to play on, and uh, it, was, it was a good match. No doubt about it. I, I noticed Tony Travert and uh, John Newcomb were in the booth for your match. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Two pretty good ones. Hey, um, I, I often write for TennisPlayer.net, and our CEO, John Yandel, has this great line. I myself have played John, um, hit with him once, and played against him once. And uh, in describing it to John Yandel, John used a, an expression that I'll never forget. He said, when you play Mac, he warps the time-space continuum. I thought, what a great line from a, a, a great tennis brain. brain. Uh, say that again? I say it again. He, he says, uh, when you play Mac, Mac warps the time-space continuum. Whether you're hitting pretty heavy or big serves, and I, I, I hit the ball, you know, with some spins, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a good lobber. And the way that guy gets to the ball, and then he hits it sort of flat, and he can do anything he wants with the ball, but it almost speeds up. What was your experience playing John? Uh, and you're a big server. I'll give you an example. Yeah. Wolf Fraser was a great basketball player. He was playing against uh, Earl Monroe. And yeah. they said to him, you're great on defense. How do you know which way? How are you able to control him to get to know which way he's going? He goes, let me tell you something. Not only do I know, know what he's doing, he goes, Earl Monroe doesn't gonna know what he's doing from time to time. And that's when you played Mac. Mac could slice it, top it. Anything. It was like an audible sometimes, like at the, at the line of scrimmage where a quarterback calls an audible. Suddenly he's going to hit it, then he chips it, digs it, lobs it. You know, he just had so much in his repertoire of things he could do. Incredible, just an incredible talent. Remarkable. It even came at the, came at you differently than Connors did or Borg did. You know, Connors was on top of you. You felt this pressure. The gym was always pushing you back with Mac. Mm. It, you know, I could win a lot of points on my serve. But you never knew what he was going to do in this situation, and you couldn't always read the ball the way he hit it because he could flick his wrist this way or that way. So it was always 
interesting to play with the Sinhalese. Is he the toughest yeah. person you played against then, from that standpoint? Again. Was he the toughest person you played against? Uh, definitely one of them. I mean, you know, I, I never played Jimmy in a match. I practiced with him, but Connors for me was tough because Connors returned so well. Mm. It didn't return like Connors, so I could win a lot of points on my serve. But Jimmy, you always felt this pressure. Same thing with Vilas, who returned great. You know, he made my game tough to play because he returned so well. So I hated to play guys who returned that you know, were great returners. Those gave me the most difficult times. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. That, yeah, Jimmy, that was almost as oh, his serve was he wasn't known as much for his serve. Yeah. He was still, you, know, you look back at the old clips; it's kind of interesting. He served and volleyed a lot more than what you think. He did, he didn't hang back. I serve a lot, and he actually should have had a better serve because if you you look at a guy's overhead, Jimmy had one of the great overheads. Oh, yeah. He should have been more aggressive on a serve. I think he could have had a bigger first serve than just putting it in like he did many times. Yeah, Jimmy had two or three kinds of overheads. He had the traditional one, the big one, and he even had this the Bud Collins skyhook sky kind of deal. Yeah, sky hook. I always loved Bud Collins when <laughs> Connors hit that skyhook. Sky yeah, yeah, he, he was still happy. No <laughs> yeah. He had a great classic overhead. I mean, just a great one. If you wow. look at the records. Yeah, I don't think he gets enough credit for being kind of a serve and volley. A net player, all-court net player, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't say he was a, you know, I would think of him kind of as a, a baseline kind of guy, grinded out, mm -hmm. but he didn't really do that. If I've watched some old clips of, of classic tennis, that dude was moving towards the net a lot more than what I thought. Took he, that backhand early. You know, it'd be one, two, three, and then he was coming in, not the ball. He had that, that sliding, you know, inside, you know, kind of outside in forehand. That forehand, and then this backhand with the, with the two quick hands, yeah. Yeah. So, hey, uh, speaking of that match with John, um, I'm holding this Jack Kramer Pro Staff with John's signature on it. He used this style racket, uh, in fact, this model when he Showed played against Facebook you. There you go. Yeah, here's John's signature. And uh, Ricky, wh what did you use in that match? You already had switched to graphite, huh? Yes, I'm using the, the classic Prince graphite. Okay, yeah, the old school. Strong with gut. The, the, uh, gut, yeah. The 110. The 110. Yeah. And I always said, I'd go to a smaller rack when I got good enough. I never, never went to a smaller one. Yeah, I, I could never figure those out. Yeah. That, you, so you started with wood and then most of your pro career with the classic prints. Yeah, well, I went from wood, I went to head. I used the red head, if you remember that one, which is a nice racket. Then I went to the edge, which is a terrific racket. The head edge was a little bigger than the red one. Yeah. And then from there, I went to the Prince Graphite and used that the rest of the time. Interesting. All very popular rackets back oh, yeah. then. Yeah, I remember them all. Yeah. all oh, the Prince Rapper, that's still, that's still the uh, granddaddy of all yeah. rackets. I mean, everything yeah, else is, is based, yeah. based off that. Uh, so so you, we, we're, we've got the ATP Finals on behind us. Yeah. You got to the semis at the ATP Finals, right? Or, yeah, the semis, right? Did you do the semis of one of the ATP? N not the year end. Oh, okay, but yeah. one one of the big no. tournaments. Yeah, so you got to the semis of, of one of the of one of the ATP tour events. Oh no, sorry. I, uh, you got to the, your first final was yes. against Johan, right? But we wanted to transition into yes. set two. Yes. Tell us about the uh, the what you think about pro tennis now yeah. as you look at the semis of uh, of the tournament in yeah. London right now. It's three out of the four guys one handed backhands. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's <laughs> surprising to say the least. Yeah. Because it's so much easier to return with two hands. And you look at so many of the players, I think you're still going to see most of the players, I think, coming up with, with two hands because it's such a difference returning serve. Yeah. And guys are bigger, stronger today. And you look at the serves, how big they're serving it. Uh, I'd be surprised if you see that many one-handers 
it's, it's shocking to see both these guys have won. And these two also have great one-handed backhands. These aren't just, you know, average one-handed. They're exceptional, yeah. But I can't believe when I watch Steve in the backhand, he hits. And there's other kids, too. I mean, this guy, this Greece is great. They, yeah, they both of them. Yeah. And and really six one, which is a bit taller than all three of us, six uh, one is now considered a short guy, like Roger, Rafa, or Dominic. Yeah, no, that's the other thing today. Most of these guys, it's funny. I was walking around the open this year, and you, when you see the kids with rackets who are playing, I'm looking at every guy is like six two, six three, six yeah. four. They're all giants today. It makes such a difference. Yeah, and, and you and you used to be considered on the tall side at six feet, right? I'm six one. Yeah. Six one. Yeah. You know, yeah, good size. Yeah. Medvedev, he's six six, I believe. Isn't yeah, he? six six. Stefanos is about six five. All these kids are. Uh, Zverev is another one, about six five, Rafa, maybe more. Yeah. Rafa six three. Uh, I think Rafa's more, more like us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The other thing is, today's game, having to track the ball, you've you got to be tall because you have to take. You know, if you're short, you got to take so many more steps. So you take yeah. fewer steps. And all these guys are quick. You know, we used to say when kids were. Want that quick? He'd say, "Oh, he, he has, yeah. you know, he, he has good feel. He has good uh, control of, of finding the ball." But today, you got to be just quick. I mean, you got to be quick off the mark. Yeah. So, so, with Davis Cup coming up uh, this week, what do you think of the new Davis Cup format? Are yeah, you a fan whole of it? new deal. Uh, I don't, I don't particularly like it because I think the older method was, was probably better. Because, uh, and speaking of friends of mine, you'll get countries around the world seem to a better chance than what's going on and try to just run it in two weeks. what happens the uh, the davis cup starts tomorrow and yep. it goes yeah. like you said almost two weeks in in madrid um it's a shorter format uh, advantage to these guys who are younger maybe uh not used to going five sets so a guy like uh, i don't know who, who do you like in this this uh davis cup with the new format I know Novak's going to be there. I think Rafa's going to try to be there. He's, he's signed up. Roger was not going to be there. Yeah, Roger. And I think Stan uh, signed up but maybe wouldn't be there. And you have Kyrgios, Dimonor. The, the yes. Australian squad looks very strong. And I know Kyrgios, maybe not always amazing in five-set formats, but always good in Davis Cup. And maybe this short format helps them. And then, of course, uh, we've got a strong team, too. Uh, it's funny, six foot one. You mentioned Francis Tiafo at six one is noticeably the short guy on our team. We have a few larger individuals, don't we? Yeah. We've got some six five plus dudes like Query. Yep. Obviously, Opelka is close to seven feet. Big John. And yeah, Taylor Harry Fritz is on the tall side at six four or five. And who, oh, Jack Sock also a uh, tall kid too. Yeah. Yeah, and then, then you move on to another cup, the ATP Cup. Do you think what's what's that all about, Rick? What do you yeah. think the ATP Cup's all about? Is that something that uh, are they trying to get rid of Davis Cup? Have in Germany, the Nations Cup before the French Open years ago. Yeah, in Dusseldorf, right? Yes, that was that was a great event because it got guys you know clay court practice before the French Open, so the players loved it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll do well because the players are going to support it. So that's important that the players support it. 
you get some of the best players out there, uh, it should go fine, I think. Yeah, it sounds like the ATP Cup and the Labor Cup worked together for the first time this year. They gave points for uh, for each, and like you said, the Dusseldorf event was a warm-up in a way on clay to get some matches before the French. This one is January 3rd through 12th, which leads into a couple tournaments like Brisbane um, and Sydney ahead of the Australian Open. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So guys who want to start the year and get going, you know, it's, it's pre-pressure list tennis in a sense, uh, but it's, you know, she has to get started and make some money, and I think the guys will support it. Yeah, probably guaranteed matches without a lot of pressure, but with points and money. So where's the Hopman Cup fit in on this, too? Because I, I like the Hopman Cup. The mixed, right? Yeah, the mixed doubles. It was kind of interesting to see, you know, Roger played against Serena, yeah, for the first time yeah. ever. I mean, that was pretty cool. Two all-time greats on the same court. Same yeah. court, same time. I mean, that yeah. was pretty, pretty interesting match. I, it seems like there's a lot of cups. I, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of. Craig always says uh, the cups runneth over. Uh, they, they are running over. Yes. I understand that, but I'll tell you, I think the Labor Cup is great because you see the combinations that you don't see in Davis Cup or Nations Cup, which is you know when you saw Federer and Nadal, that was unbelievable. See those guys play doubles together. People love that. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Huge kick. Yeah, and the interaction. Uh, that the camera picks up on the sides, yeah. It's kind of like going to Indian Wells. Indian Wells will play doubles also, too, a lot of the guys. will we'll play. Yeah. The singles guys play doubles. Yeah. Yeah. Star-studded uh, dubs draws. Yeah, do yeah, no, But that's why you get to see the combination. You, you don't see Davis Cup or Nations Cup because it's not by country. Yeah. Then you throw the Olympics in there. I mean, there's just a lot of... Are there too many team-type things, you think, or are they all going to... Is there a place for something like that? You know... Time will tell us, and the way the crowds react to it will tell us. It all comes down to sponsorship, sponsorship dollars, particularly with the Nations Cup. Davis Cup will stay one way or the other because they're not going to get rid of Davis Cup because it's too important for so many countries. So the ITF is not going to let that walk away. They support it financially, and we'll make sure that continues. Mm. The Labor Cup, you know, after Federer is done playing, will it continue? Only time will tell. And after Labor's gone, it will be that important to people. You know, now Labor shows up, and Federer shows up in the Dow, and you know, people love it because it's great. I don't know if you, you know, you're going to go. Crossing the generations, you know, all of us love that. Yeah, that's that's a huge kick for me too. I'm a sucker for that that emotional yeah, aspect. Yeah. Come on, it's so it's so much fun to see. It's so are you, yeah. It's are so you going to venture up to uh, Beantown for the uh, next Labor Cup? That's right, September of 2020 in Boston. Are you going to be up there? I, I may very well do it. It's I want to come up. I love Davis Cup, and I missed out on the Prague and Geneva, and I even missed out on the Chicago, which I totally should have gone to. It's a quick flight from Dallas. But Boston, I think, is on our list. And actually, our friend PJ from the Tennis Congress talked about doing something up there, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, PJ's good. I did the Tennis Congress this year. He's a great guy. Yeah, remarkable yeah. fellow, yeah. Tell us about your uh, your experience with the Tennis Congress, and that's, of course, where we, um, uh, I mean, I'd heard your name many times before, but that's where we actually met and had lunch and all that. Um, yeah, how long have you been doing that? And uh, Maybe you can tell the people at home uh, what that is and, and your, your perspective on it. Uh, it was started by PJ Simmons, who's a local player in New York, <clears throat> probably, say, a 4 player. Wants to play, wants to improve all the time, and he had this idea getting other people like him who want to improve but have no way of touching pros who show up at the Tennis Congress like Gigi Hernandez, mm. Tim Mayotte, John Austin, Emilio Sanchez, you know, people who've won Grand Slam titles, numerous titles, and to be coached by them for the week, which is an unbelievable experience. Yeah. So 
he started in, I know we started, but the last three I've done have been in Tucson. And he gets a couple hundred people. It's at the El Conquistador Hotel, which is a Hilton Hotel, beautiful location. They have 20 courts there, and then they use another location with courts. And people get to experience it and work on areas they want to work on. They, can, they tell beforehand where they need improvement, where they want to work, and they're putting with coaches. For instance, I do things on the surf because my surf was clocked 130 miles an hour. It was the best shot in my game, and I think I really understand it and can teach it. So I'll do clinics on the surf and lectures on it so those people who want to improve the surf will come to that class. And we work on it, and, you know, always able to help people. And, and it's a lot of fun, and people come back. A lot of them come back year after year. Some people, it's just a one-time thing. But uh, it's a great opportunity for people to get instruction by great pros that they would never get the opportunity to in their lifetime. It was my uh, first time doing it, and I was uh, really impressed at the number of uh, repeat offenders, you know, and the number of repeat uh, the athletes who came uh, I mean, there were quite a few athletes who were there all six years. Remarkable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they all seem to learn more and more and enjoy more and more. I love hearing that. And they probably had how much? I'm still learning things in this game, and I've been playing it for years. So for these people, every time they come, to learn a little nuance here. It could be on a serve. It could be on the ground stroke. It could be on a return to serve. And you think, what I always say to the people I work with there, if you take the match and you're playing and you're losing 7-5, if we can help you play 3 to 5% better, you can turn those matches around immediately. So... Little things they learn, they can make a big difference yeah, in them winning more matches, so, which is what these people want to do because they're all playing competitive tennis. So you still like to play to this day? You still like to chase the yellow yellow ball around? Absolutely. It's, look, it's a love affair. After, you know, for all these years, I love playing and hitting. I have a son who was nationally ranked, my son Alex, and so it was fun to teach him and play with him. You know, and we still hit balls at times, and my son Matthew plays. He's a little older than Alex, so uh -huh. both my play. And it's a lot of fun. I love playing tennis. I play on a team here in Stanford. We have a team we have a lot of fun with. So oh, still playing and still enjoying it. So, so are you the family champ? I just got to know that. You still are the family champ. Uh, we both have sons who are six foot three and uh, probably the family champ in our no, no, respective no. homes. He was about 16 when, when the title got wrestled away from me. Same in my house, about 16, yeah. Well, that's pretty good, though. Yeah, Rick's still the family champ. Not too shabby, Rick. That's great. Yeah. So, so uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on American tennis and worldwide tennis so two two different questions there yeah. so what do you think the state of american tennis looks like from a, from from a men's and a women's perspective and then also internationally speaking i think on the women's side the women are ahead of the men and there are probably more women ranked in the top 200 than, than men uh i think that the usta is coming around and hopefully will you know reduce some players i, I think it's not easy for the U.S. players, the U.S. kids, because there's so many things vying for their attention, you know, between computers, school, mm. and other sports. And, you know, we live in a wealthy society here, and it's, I'm not saying the kids aren't hungry, but you look at kids from Croatia, Russia, it's their ticket out of there for many of them. Yeah. And, you know, they're just, a lot of them are just a little bit hungrier. Also, uh, comparing, if you put together the U.S. kids and the world kids, here's the difference. When I was competing, 50 of the top 100 were from the U.S. Yeah. But realize when I was playing, there was no one from Russia because it was a closed society, as was all the other countries, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, those were all closely 
very few players were coming out of it, unless you were a talent like Nastasi and Turiak, but they wanted them on the world. But there was no freedom to come out. They were controlled by the association, and they couldn't just go on their own. You had Spain was coming off, you know, civil war from Franco. It was a very poor country. Not much was going on in Spain. There was no middle class at that point. Mm. You had very little middle class in Italy. Yugoslavia was the Tito. Was a, no players were coming out there. Except one player, Pillar, came out of there. Yeah, Pillar, no, and they no, had no, they had a woman no, or two. I remember Mima Yasovic. Uh, there yeah, were a few, right. yeah, one or two. just a South couple. America, you know, every other, other year, the currencies were getting devalued in South America, so you didn't see a middle class in South America. Mm-hmm. There were no Asian players for the most part. Japan, Korea, you didn't see players coming out of there. You know, now you have players from all, all these countries you're competing with, and, and it's just more competitive for the U.S. players. They're competing with kids, many more numbers, number one. Mm-hmm. People who are hungrier, I think. And a lot of these companies, it's countries like Spain, have developed a great program, you look at the global players coming out of Spain in the past few years, because they have a great structural similar, we had a poor Washington where they have all these academies, they've got world-class players teaching them, and they're getting results. Mm-hmm. So Lots of results, right. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's harder for American players, and I think a lot of these places, they've been hungrier, at least. Not they're not going to get some great players out of here, but I don't think put it this way. I think the greatest athletes in this country, across the board, most of them, playing basketball, football, baseball, I think you got some of those players to play tennis, you compete easier on a world stage. Uh, you know, you still have players, not to you know, look, there was in the top 10, Sock hit the top 10 recently. Yeah. But, you know, not easy to win a major, particularly, look, in the last 15 years, with Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray there, it's been a unique time. I've never had four guys who've dominated that many majors for so many years. It's, it's just true. Time period, too. It's true. We had that many guys... Um, Dominating maybe half as many majors when we had you, your, your era, John, Jimmy, Lendl, Borg. That was quite a quartet. But if you count their slams, it's about uh, it's a little less than half of these three guys right now. Yeah, it's quite it's just astonishing what these guys have accomplished. It's, Remarkable. It's really yeah. When you throw Andy Murray in there, when he's not injured, I mean, he was still. Um, yeah, yeah, it's great. My my hip is feeling better, and um, I'm just playing as, uh, uh, just as uh, the the same boring style from before, and I'm uh, I'm just chuffed to bits to be sort of back and beating Stan in a, in Antwerp. That was that was remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I, I, sorry, I had to. I, I had one Scottish coach, and I feel like Andy speaks Scottish, but also like that monotone American teenager. So I like to blend the two, and that becomes my Murray. He's the Jason Garrett of uh, Amer- of uh, tennis, right? Jason Garrett is, is our coach at the Cowboys, and he speaks total the monotone. most monotone, the most boring press conferences, the most politically correct. Yeah. All three phases of the game. That's it. Yeah, we, we all know that. Do you have three phases of the game? We have offense, uh, neutral, uh, or defense, uh, and, and special teams. Special and, and teams. Uh, drop shot retrieval and lobbing. Uh, that's really what I do well. <laughs> uh, of course, I, I enjoy trying to um, cure insomnia uh, with my voiceover work. That's been tremendous for the nonprofit sector. So I've been enjoying that, Rick, yeah. <laughs> hey, so does the USTA, do they ever call you up and go, hey, Rick, would you would you mind spending some time down in uh, Orlando at the, yeah. the national campus helping kids out? Does, any, does anyone ever you know, ring you up? 
no, I can't say in the past, although I've been talking lately with some of the people, one or two guys there about maybe helping some of the girls with their serves, but maybe something may come about. But, Lick, on that note, when I met you, you had a University of Pennsylvania men's tennis hat on. You're still involved with the team, aren't you? Yes, because uh, first I go down every year to help the men's and women's team. Excellent. Uh, we also have a, ten, a mentoring program in the athletic department. So, for instance, I mentored the number one woman on the women's team, Connor Daniels, for a number of years. You may remember her brother, Taro Daniels, who beat Djokovic. Oh, of course, sure. Taro, yeah. yeah. The top 100. Uh, so, we have this mentoring program so kids don't fall through the cracks, number one, in terms of academically. But we also have these kids with internships after the junior year, which... You know, Eastern schools is really important if you want to end up on Wall Street to yeah. get an internship, and then we help with jobs after that. So it's a lifelong thing. We consider part of what we call part of the Ten Tennis family, always helping these kids. So that's I'm great. Very involved with that. Well, speaking of finance, tell us a little bit about what you're doing professionally in the uh, in the finance world. Uh, for the last 20 years, I've been doing commercial real estate finance. So I deal with developers around the country who need money either to build a building. Uh -huh. Buy a building or refinance it. And they come to me whether they need first mortgage money, mezzanine money, preferred equity, equity. Because uh, I know all the different lenders who do this. So that's what I've been doing the past 20 years. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, so after the tour, that, that you used, used your uh, degree in business to uh, work in the commercial industry. Did you, did you go directly to commercial real estate or did that just kind of find no, you? No, I worked in financial printing, which we used to print Wall Street's documents when I first got it. That was a job that Clark Raven and Billy Talbot used to do. Oh, wow. Big names in tennis, yeah. Yeah. And then that business, though, died because of computerization. <laughs> because you used to send money to the printer. You used to send documents to the printer right away. And if the laser printers came out, they said, stuff camera ready. So that bit, five of the top ten went bankrupt, never to come back. So that business died. Then I worked for Marty Whitman in the bankruptcy area. Did that for a number of years. Did some stuff in tennis. And then ended up in the real estate business the last 20. Oh, great. Well, not, not a bad deal. Do you take the train down to the downtown every day, New York City? Uh, I did for many years, but no longer. I'm in Stanford, Connecticut. No more commuting to New York because most of my clients are around the country. So as long as I answer the telephone call, the email, yeah. or the text, that's all they care about. That's great. And your wife's involved. She's a serial entrepreneur, isn't she? What is she doing now? She has a business called BedsideReading.com. So if you checked into the Fairmont in L.A., Mandarin in New York or Washington, Waldorf in Chicago, next to your bed would be one to three best-selling books that you would take home for free. She places those books there for the publishers and for the authors. Uh -huh. Just a, it's it, a great <laughs> Does she come up with this idea on her own, or did she kind of fall into yep, it? She, no, she came up with it on, on her own. She's a real entrepreneur. What a smart, and, smart uh, idea. Now, what happened in the business was that ever since Kindle... No one knows what you're reading. So yeah. she was doing gift bags, and she put out in the Hamptons, and the publishers wanted their books on the beach, so she started doing that for publishers in the summer in the Hamptons about 16 years ago. And then she decided to do this full-time. She was in hotels in the Hamptons, and now she does it all year round in hotels around the country. Does she put different books in different places, or does she kind of do the same same books all over? Does she have kind of a reason? No, no, no. no it depends which book it is, because certain hotels want certain books. It could be business, it could be fiction. So different books in different hotels. Okay. It just depends what it matches for the, for the hotels. Oh, that's fantastic. They actually have a plan in place. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? They have a plan. They have a plan in place kind of for each hotel, what they're kind of looking for, maybe what their clients are looking for. And, right, uh, what type of client? Because the clients that might be in the Fairmont in L.A. are different than the, the Waldorf in Chicago. Sure. Makes sense. So you got to know who you're 
Makes sense. Well, let's let's head to set number three, and we call this one fast hands, sort of like reflex volleys. No need to um, to go too long, and yes. more of a word association or quick answer kind of stuff, Rick. Right. This is more pop culture. Yeah. 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 We've talked a lot about tennis, and we just like to get to know people on, on kind of a different level. So, like, what's the first band you saw in concert? The first band. Uh, oh God. I can't even tell you. Uh, maybe it was uh, the Stones from New York a long time ago. <laughs> Sorry, what was the name of the band? The Stones. Oh, the oh, Stones. Stones. The Stones. Interesting. Gosh, which tour? I, I saw the the one in the mid '80s. You probably saw them in the '70s. Yeah, '70s, and it was New York at the Cardinals. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, that's great. So now. Think about okay, a band that you really like besides the Stones. Let's say, what what would what band would you want to hear, and where would you want to hear them at? Like, what venue would you like to be at Wembley yeah, and listen to the Beatles? Would you? I mean, it could be anybody. It could be old old school, new school. Craig, I, I don't know how he's gonna. Uh, that's what I, that was my answer last week. Beatles. I don't know how he's gonna top Stones at Madison Square Garden, but that's pretty good. Yeah, see, he's got it. He's got an answer for us. The Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to put them back together. Uh, are you a movie guy, TV guy? What's, what's your favorite, like, movie, TV show? Movie guy. So what's your favorite movie? The all-time is Godfather 1 and 2. Interesting. Hadn't had that one. That was actually one of my answers from last week, Godfather 2. <laughs> Interesting. Ah. So, so you, you like the uh, more of the mafia-style movies? Is that kind of what you're into, the crime movie? Or do you no, like... I just think they were the two Time, and then the Casablanca would be number three. Ah, that's a the great movie. bogey movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, <coughs> are, you, are you a TV guy? You watch any TV? Absolutely. Okay. What, Absolutely. what shows do you watch? What are you? Uh, yeah. I mean, all-time favorite that's off now was Seinfeld. Seinfeld. That, that's yeah. That's mine. That that definitely comes up in our conversation all the time. Yeah. yeah. Recently watched a great show, an Australian TV show Australia. on Acorn Television to, to British TV called A Place to Call Home. A place uh -huh. to call. Interesting. You guys should take a look. A place to call home. A place to call home. We'll look that up. Yeah. Was that back in the 90s, 2000s? When was it? Oh, this, this is recent. Oh, recent. Oh, recent. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. And then 50s Australia. Okay. A place to call home. We'll, place, yeah, we'll look it yeah. up. I'm gonna look that and, up. And our people watching this, um, you know, watch it and clap back to us. Tell, right. tell us what you think. A place yeah. to call home. You need to check that out. What do you enjoy doing? Do you like uh, cooking, eating, you know, drinking? Everybody likes to cook, eat, or drink. Yeah. Out there. Do, you, do you enjoy that kind of stuff, or what do you really enjoy doing? What, what's uh, Rick Meyer do on his, his, his time off? All, all three of those are good. <laughs> <laughs> cooking, eating, and drinking. In no yeah. particular order, right? Yeah, it's great. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, okay, so now here's kind of a hypothetical, a great hypothetical, because we've asked uh, several people this. What are, and you can have more people than this, we're just going to say start off with four. Who are the four people you invite to dinner at, at the Meyer House? If you're yeah. throwing a spread out, who, and it can be anybody from history, we've had some interesting answers. Yeah, you can go back in time a little bit, sure. um, yeah, have some fun with it. And it can be, like I said, political leaders to, you know, sports people. Entertainers. Yeah. So who, who comes to Rick Meyer's house? Okay, Ben Franklin. Wow. Oh, okay. It started the University of Pennsylvania in 70, 1740. Sure. Right. Thomas Jefferson mm. wrote the Declaration of Independence. Sure. Abraham Lincoln, our greatest president. 
He's got some deep thinkers. Uh, yeah. And fourth, uh, maybe Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah. We've had him. Yeah, we've had yeah he's a good answer. Uh, that's I, there's got to be an award for Ricky Meyer for being the most patriotic and philosophical at the same time. Uh, dinner guest yes. group. That was awesome. Yeah, Ben Franklin would be great because he, yeah. he invent not only was a he was a great inventor, just a great mind, had a lot of stuff going on, and he's he's on the hundred. Do you think he's more well known for the hundred dollar bill or being you know like at, at University of Pennsylvania? Is he? Uh, most people call it. <laughs> everybody, everybody. Everybody wants a Franklin. Everybody yeah. knows Mr. Franklin. Which is the largest employer in Philadelphia and just one of the great universities in this country. Oh, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, are you an East Coast guy or a West Coast guy? My son also is a graduate there. I went there, my brother went there, my son went there. Oh, yeah. you're, wow. you're oh, a lot of Quakers in your house. Yes. Right, and it makes my wife a pen mom. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Where'd she go to college? Is she, is she uh... He went to Colorado College. Oh, oh yeah, yes. small uh, small liberal arts school. Yes, in uh, in fact, that. CC Tigers, Colorado Springs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so how'd you all meet? She, she's from Colorado. You're from New York. Where, where'd you all meet? Just I'm gonna divert real quick. She's from Colorado. She's from Great Neck, also where I grew. Okay, she's okay. from she. You were probably in in high school or college, huh? Yep, yep. We knew each other from a young age. Oh, that's great. So just a quick, just a thought here, real quick. How'd she get out to Colorado? Hey, b back then, did Colorado College do what they do in the modern era, which is short semesters of one class? Not even semesters, but yes. quarters. Yeah, they did it. It's called the block method. Yeah. It's interesting you know that. And it's a great way of learning because you have one course for three weeks, and that's all you study. Not six or eight and weeks, not you, quarters. I wish I had that at, at Penn or four weeks, whatever it is. Yeah. I wish I had that because it would let you just study one course. Like when I was at Penn, you'd have four or five courses. you go, what do I study tonight? you got to juggle. Where at Colorado College, you just intensely dig deep into one course. It's brilliant. I think it's terrific. It's a great way of learning. Yep. Oh. Right, a lot of people. I think more schools probably taught on the block method than what's done now. East, East Coast, West Coast? East Coast. I figured you might say that. Yeah, I figured he would. <laughs> Why, though? For the culture or the scenery or the hills or what? Change of seasons. Seasons. Where I was born, but I do. My wife had lived in LA, so we spent time in LA, and I, I do love LA. And her mother lives in San Francisco, so I do love the West Coast. And I love the weather, obviously, and I have a lot of tennis friends out there. For sure. Ideally, spend time in part of the year in both, so I wouldn't have to deal with winter anymore. Yeah, <laughs> the shoveling, the shoveling of snow. Yeah, I don't miss that. Right, so I can play tennis outdoors all year round. That'd be the best. Yes. Mountains or beach? Beach. Beach. I know your wife is probably going to say mountains. She loves the water I grew up right near the water. I spent yeah. a lot of time sitting at the water at the beach and Great Neck and looking in. There's something calming about that open area. So I love being near the water. She does too. Oh, I, mean, I like the mountains, but if I had to take one, I, uh, the water lives up her mountains. What, what's your uh, favorite season? Do you like summer, winter, spring, fall? I like spring because it's new beginnings. The clocks go forward. It stays lighter, longer. Yeah. And it's new things happening, so I love the spring. Yeah. I mean, I, love the fall. I, I do love fall, and that's when we used to play our high school tennis, so fall was a great time of year also. So in New York, New York, they have fall high school tennis? 
the boys play. Yeah, used to play in the fall. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Because yeah, we we. Uh, well, it makes more sense. You come off yeah. the summer with kids if they play any tennis. Sure. Now you play a lot. You come into the season, and then you've been playing as opposed mm. to in the spring. A lot of kids didn't have a chance to play in the winter, mm -hmm. so you come in, you're really cold. Yeah. And yeah, we played in Oklahoma. We, we played in the spring. We had spring season only. Yeah, in Texas, it's spring here too. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and we had some fall stuff. So you had the yeah. team in fall and individuals. Individuals in spring. In spring. Yeah. yeah. For for public, not private you had school. Team in the fall, and then you had individual in the spring. We had yeah. singles and doubles in the states. Individual stuff in sure. spring. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Well, what's your favorite holiday? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Oh, oh next week. Yeah. I that that was actually my answer too, last week. <laughs> Well, how come? Just just being thankful for everything that you have or relatives? Dad and also it's a holiday. Just getting together with friends. It's not about gifts and this or that. It's just get together, have a nice, casual, lovely time based on just relationships. And I believe life is based on relationships. That's what I always tell my kids. Oh, fantastic answer, yeah. Spare time. What do you like to do in your spare time? I go to the gym every day. I like to play tennis. I play squash. I love to read. Reading is... A luxury, so I love to read, mm. go to the movies, spend time with my wife, my kids. Have you uh, have you seen Ford versus Ferrari? That's kind of the the latest. I've heard really good things about. It. I just, just came out Friday. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen that? I didn't see it, but we went to the movies Friday night and we saw Liar, the one with uh, Helen Mirren. You should see it. It's oh. great. Oh yeah, yeah. Good things. Yeah. Okay. That liar. <laughs> yeah. Good one. Hey, um, Rick, I, I see you as a guy who is well before your time. Um, you mentioned how Hoppen was well before his time and started the, the way modern tennis is, is played. Um, people make a big deal out of, uh, I, guess, I guess you'd call it politics, uh, whether it's religious or what. You were actually probably the first um, as part of a Jewish and Arab doubles team. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Sarasota because Izzy Ismail Ashrafei didn't show up. Yeah, right. So I said to Victoria Selmy, who's the AT rep, I said, next time I see him, dinner's on me with him, wherever it is in the world. Awesome. So I see him, I'm buying him dinner because I come to the tournament and obviously ended up going to the finals. Yeah. So in 1981, I got I was straight into the tournament, Sofia, Bulgaria. And at that time, it was still behind the Iron Curtain. So I go to Sofia, I walk into the dining room. And there, sitting at the table, is Isabel Alshafei and his wife. And I walk up to him and say, Izzy, I'm buying you dinner tonight. He goes, <laughs> <laughs> I say, because you didn't show up in Sarasota. I'm forever grateful. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure your wallet was, uh, it was a pretty easy blow to your wallet, unlike some of the hotels where your wife, where her books are, right? He said, he said, he said you're lucky it's in Paris or London. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> some huge city like right. Paris, London, New York, Chicago, where are yeah. And so we're staying at the, the best hotel in Sofia. You have a menu that was like a restaurant in Paris, and you'd ask the waiter, could I have this, could I have that, no, we're out of this, we're out of that, we don't have this. All they had was anemic chicken and rice. They had <laughs> Russian beer, which was very strong. But uh -huh. they did have caviar, which came from you know, the Balkans. There's the Balkans in that area. So the caviar, which was the cheapest caviar you could you could ever eat, it was, you know, because it was local, and they, 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 it was from that area. So I'm sitting with Izzy, and he says, this was the last tournament he was going to play. He was retiring after this tournament. So we were talking. He said, he said, you know, you want to play doubles? I said, sure. So it was great to play with him. And this was the first time, I believe, in the history of tennis that an Arab and a Jew played together. Love it. We yeah. got to the finals, and that was the last tournament. 
Congrats, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's beautiful. Uh, oh, yeah, there aren't too many of those situations out there, and you all seem to work it out, I guess. didn't Probably didn't talk politics, but everything else, right? Oh, that's, I want you and Izzy El Shafei at Camp David and to work out this whole Israel-Palestine thing. <laughs> I want you guys on that. <laughs> who, who do we call? Yeah, try we call Trump for that. Try, call call the Don. Right yeah, now. let's call him up right there. Yeah. What's this, speaking of tennis? Kind of yeah. kind of, kind of shifted a question. What's the most embarrassing moment in your tennis career? Embarrassing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did anything happen? Kind of like, ooh, I kind of like, uh, didn't didn't mean for that to happen, or you know. Nothing that stands out like you know, because it happened to some of the girls at Wimbledon. We've seen some of those things that happened, but no. <laughs> no, not, nothing crazy. No, huh? no uh, clothing uh, malfunctions or anything like that to you, or you know. No, nothing. No, nothing like that. Never okay. Happened. Yeah. Uh, okay. Do, do you like to watch uh, tennis on TV? Do you enjoy watching? It really is. Who, who would be a guy you would um, you would pay to watch, w women or men? Who who would be your favorite player to watch right now? That's a good question. I had this discussion with someone recently, and I said, on the women's side, I would pay to watch Lindsey Davenport play. Interesting. She crushed the ball so flat. I think I said to Robert Lanzoff once. I, I was with my son Alex, who was nationally ranked out at Lansdorf's house. He was hitting with him. And I said, you know, you probably think, or people will say, Tracy Austin was your best pupil, or Sampras, or Brian Teacher, Telcher, or Sharp Prof. I said, your best pupil was Davenport. He said, how can you say that? Why would you say that? I said, very simple. Here's a woman who was, didn't actually move like Steffi Graf. Yeah. She didn't serve like Serena, although she was a tall girl at times, she'd big serve, but not a natural server. Yeah. But she hit ground strokes, the best hitting ground strokes that maybe anyone who's ever played the game, the cleanest on both sides. And, 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 back. and she could break... Backhand back is as good or, or better than hers, but she didn't hit as well with the forehand side. I would pay to watch Lindsay Davenport hit. She had such a clean ball, because here's a woman... Yeah, she, she was one of the women who could break somebody with four swings, and she held usually because her serve was actually, like you said, it wasn't natural, but pretty big serve, and it helps to be six foot three, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, she was. Even, even with this style racket. Yes. <laughs> A 78 inch. Uh, Hey, you mentioned going to the gym every day. Uh, you mind if we ask you, what are some of the fitness methods that you enjoy the most these days? Absolutely. Here's what I do. I, I did this the last couple. I wake up every morning and I do 20 reps of 13 different types of sit-ups. Uh -huh. That's a daily thing. Do some push-ups. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I lift weights. And I do what's called a boost protocol, which is the test they give you when they check your heart. It's going uphill and it gets faster and faster as you go along. Boost, yeah. And then the opposite days I do, I run a mile and just try to keep bringing the time down. And I also do sprints on the bike with no resistance. You're over 60 and you're actually getting lower in times on the mile. 
Because I'm working on it, you know, if you just improve a little bit each day, you can bring the time down, you know. Tremendous, yeah. yeah. I, do on, I do it on a treadmill, so you know exactly the speed you're going. Yeah. And, you know, so you can adjust, you can, you know, watch and adjust it, how long it takes you, what speed you're going at the whole time, and you can change it up and monitor it. So it's it's easy to do that. So is, is, is your body held up pretty well? No back problem, knee problem, you know, shoulder relatively, elbow, Okay. No, I, I've been lucky. I mean, you know, with the, with the guy with the big serve, I never had any problems. But I had a very classical motion that O'Grady taught me, so it never put much strain on my arm. I was very lucky. Oh, you were so loose, beautiful serve with really not even a hint of a hitch. And back then, a lot of guys had have had different serves, and yeah. yours just yours so clean. Yeah, I was very lucky. I had you know great teachers. Uh, very lucky, and uh, you know taught me the right things to do, which was you know. The, Technique with no Grady. Someone taught me how to toss the ball up. So if you toss the ball in the right spot, it puts no pressure on your arm. So and then Warren Woodcock taught me how to jump into the serve, and then he had the speed. So just very lucky I have great teachers. Can you still bring the heat? Uh, yeah, yes, I can. I, 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 I know you can. I saw you in Arizona, and I thought he's teaching all these people to serve. And they have no idea. He's still way over 100 miles an hour. This guy is too. Yeah. Craig Bell, you've been clocked at 130, huh? Right there. Yeah, yeah. right around it. Yeah. And you're about 5'11 five five, and a half. Yeah, 5'11. Yeah. Yeah. Was that driving 130 or what? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Downhill uh, with the wind behind my back. That's what I do is drive 130, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'll tell you another funny story. You remember John Alexander, the tennis player? Oh, Definitely. Sure. Yeah, Australian. Big John, yeah. yeah. Sure. Anytime you can afford a car that's that goes faster than your serve, that, that's pretty. You, good. You've made it, J. A. Right, right. You've made it, man. Exactly. He was uh, he was an Australian Davis Cupper and then captain, right, of their team. Yeah, great player. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Speaking of players, then who would you have liked to played in your career? It could be a current player, former player. You know, who would you have liked to play? You know, if you could pick somebody out, who would who would have been oh, fun to play? Awesome. Yeah, play the king. Where would you play the king at? Uh, I'd want to play him on grass. Ah, you at, at take it to him. Man, that'd be a good match. Yeah. I thought you were going to say an indoor hardtruth court at Port Washington, but you went straight for the cathedral. Right. <laughs> you did it, man. I don't think so. <laughs> so uh, who's your favorite tennis player ever, and then maybe who's your favorite tennis player currently? Yeah. Really? Okay. Chris Evans. Particularly being a Dell. I just think these guys have been so great for tennis. You know what I mean? They brought to the game. and You watch how these guys compete, and when they behave, what they've done. It's just been terrific ambassadors for our sport. Yeah. Uh, so did you say Chris Everett also, too? Did I hear you say that? No, I didn't say oh, he, he was saying uh, ever, oh, and, and, ever, ever okay. and today both. I gotta get same the answer. Same answer, yeah. Cotton out of my ear. Sorry about that. <laughs> So about maybe on the women's side, who do you like on the women's side? Who's, yeah. who's your favorite player, women-wise, and uh, current and maybe former? Uh, I always 
thought she was a great competitor, great attitude. And the fact that she came back after every kid won, won the U.S. Open two years in a row, I just really a fan of hers. I, I'm and a fan ta of her. Talking too. about coming back, too. She's talking about coming back. I picked Crazy. up on that at uh, 34. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's had three kids and she's good enough to come back. It's so awesome. Hey, I have a feeling, Rick, you would love Ash Barty. What do you? How do you feel about her? Yeah, I think she's great. I, I, I'm really impressed. I, I love her attitude. You know, she's not a diva. She's just she's out there fighting like a typical Australian, and really seems to have her her, her, her values together. I was reading about the guy who's been the. Uh, Coaching not on the court but off the court. Oh, Tizer, yeah, Tizer, Ties, she calls him. Yeah, and I think no, she's a, she's a breath of fresh air when you look at so many of the others, you know. Yeah, definitely. Hey, um, any superstitions or rituals you had? Kept that tradition. So you still. I, I will tell you a funny habit of Venus had. I played doubles with him in Sydney, another place, but we're playing doubles in Sydney. And he, when we changed sides, would not walk across the court to go return serve. He'd walk around the court. And it must have been that he beat, when he either beat Connors the first time or beat someone the first time, he won and he just did it the rest of his career. I never noticed that. That's so funny. Yeah. yeah. Did you call him out on it? You're like, hey, what are you doing, Venus? Did he say it? you. Yeah, please, yeah. <laughs> and the way we played doubles together, that was fun. Because, you know, he was such a great guy to play doubles with. He oh. turned so well, and he was such a, such a fun guy. So he wanted to go around the court, that's fine with me. Yeah. And and he probably, I don't know if he had a Ferrari, but did he ever take you for a ride in the Rolls Royce? Yes. Yeah, in fact, one time, during the Open, right before the Open, we were practicing at his house. Nastasi was there, Borg was there, and a few other guys. And it rained, so Mr. Gerald Lightus clearly got his courts from great nephew in Roslyn indoors. So we're driving in his rolls, and Nastasi's in the car in front of him. And we stop on Northern Boulevard driving, and Nastasi gets out of the car and moves us. <laughs> beautiful. Boulevard, cars going back and forth both ways. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. That must have been, it must have been a, an adventure live. Living around Vetus, being with Vetus, knowing Vetus, was he as bigger than life in every way that you hear about him? He was bigger than life. He was one of the nicest people you could ever meet. Mm. Just a generous, lovely guy. Give you the shirt off his back. And, you know, he was no carry on. He just went out. He, he also, you know, people think about him, you know, Studio 54 and all that. He, I would say he, along with Vetus, uh, Gottfried, Borg, and him, and Joe Connors in there were the hardest practices of that era. Mm, interesting. He just practiced more than most guys. He, he would hit for hours. You know, a lot of guys would go out and play sets. We'd go out and just hit sometimes, just hit for hours at times because he just wanted to get grooved and feel good. And he practiced as hard as anyone. Harry used to run him into the ground and he'd take everything Harry gave him. So he, oh. he was basically a gym rat, as, as they say in basketball or a court rat. Yeah, and what was interesting, when he came to Port Washington, he was about 16, and at 16, I watched Michael Fishback just tear him apart at the Orange Bowl, easy, not even close. That, when, that year, he came to Port Washington, and within a year, you know, most kids get better by the season, 
maybe by the months, weeks. He was getting better by the minute. Wow. I mean, he was a talent. He just a star rising. And by 17, the next year, he won the national clay courts. was one of the best juniors. By the next year, he really was the best junior. He didn't win Kalamazoo, but he was the best junior without a doubt. and went farther than anyone else of his, his year. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know awesome that. Awesome guy. Yeah. So, so what sport would you have played if it wasn't for tennis? If you could, could uh, say, okay, I'm not playing tennis, what other sport would you have liked to have played? Well, before I played tennis, I, I swam competitively as a swimmer. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, I was a competitive swimmer as a kid and did that up until age 13, and then uh, I decided to just play tennis. I mean, I, I played baseball as a kid. Mm. That was always Hey, as a New Yorker and a baseball fan, are you a Mets guy or a Yankees? Uh, a lifelong Yankee fan, but, no, but I also like the Mets. I've been going to the Mets a lot following, especially look when the Mets did well when they had Seaver and they won the World Series in '59 and '86. You know. Yeah, '86. That was an amazing year too. Yeah. Well, we got got to ask Giants and Jets then. Okay. Yeah. Giants well, or football. Jets? All right. You got to throw that in. Giants or Jets? Oh, Giants. Yeah, even with Joe Willie? Oh, come on. Back in 69? Yeah. Broadway Joe? It was a great time. I went to go to Jet games, but, you know, from a young age, it was, you know, the Giants were there before the Jets even existed. That's right. So, Knicks Knicks or Nets? Let's go basketball. So, Knicks? Knicks. Knicks? Your answers are all consistent because most Yankees, Giants, and uh, Knicks fans, okay, well, they, they, it's a cabal. I okay, think it's a, last one then. Rangers or Islanders? Uh, Rangers. I oh, knew it. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Man, he went straight down the line. Just down the middle. Uh, excellent, excellent He didn't go for any of the counterculture groups. It's funny. Our next guest next week will be, you probably know her. We've had another New Yorker on uh, from Long Island, Noah Rubin. And our next one is Christina McHale, huge Yankees fan. Really? Yeah, she, she lives in New Jersey. So another New Yorker by phone next week. Okay, so if you go... If you go Yankees, do you go Mick or do you go Roger? I said if you're a Yankee fan, do you go uh, the Mick or do you go Roger Maris? Oh, uh, Oh, okay, yeah, that's. I think this is even a little before Rick's time, but I, I love right yeah. around there. I, I mean, love he, it. Yeah. He was probably if he's 55, then you start seeing Roger Maris, yeah. Mickey Mantle, those guys. That was about the time when they were in his uh, wheelhouse. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I'm an old guy, too, so I, yeah. know, I know these things. My brother loved Mickey Mantle, and we lived in Oklahoma. That's right. Mickey's a, he has a steakhouse right, in Oak City. Yeah. Here's the team, 1961. We had Scarron on first, Richardson at second, Kubek at shortstop. Tony Kubek. And he had Mantle in the outfield. Right, at Maris, and left, he had either... Trish, Elston Howard, Gordon, and Yogi behind the plate. Yeah, oh, that's great. Y Yogi had already gone by then? No, Yogi, no, Yogi was still there, but Elston Howard was coming up at that time. I see. He had Whitey Ford pitching, he had Ralph Terry pitching. Allie Reynolds was at towards the end of his career. Did, did you go to quite a few games? Did you go to quite a few games? Yes. Up in the Bronx, you did it, huh? 
Yes. Yeah. Bronx was great. I went to a lot of games at Shea Stadium, too, because that was easy from Great. Yeah, Shea is sure. so easy. You're in the north shore of yeah. Long Island, very close to you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right, so we got two more questions for you. We appreciate the time because we've kind of gone overtime. We you. went a little over, but it was so, it's yeah. been so great and engaging. Thank you, Ricky. Yeah. But last two here. Last two. All right, we're all in the home stretch. All right, so if you wouldn't be involved in tennis, what would you really want to be involved with? Are you doing what you think you want to be involved in? Obviously, you have a second career in finance. Is that really, if you wouldn't have played tennis, could, do you see yourself doing what you're doing right now, or would you have been involved in something else? Would you want to be a doctor, lawyer? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two things. I always thought growing up I was going to be a surgeon because my father was a surgeon. And he and Eric Glick, who was the doctor at the Oak, you might have known Eric Glick. I don't know if you knew that name. He lived across the street from us. Eric, <clears throat> my father, four of the doctors, built an old hospital on Little Neck, Queens, mm -hmm. right there on the expressway called DPL General. So my father would take me into the operating room on weekends at times when he'd have an emergency, and I'd put on the green outfit, the hat, the mask, and I'd scrub with them, and I'd stand right at the table and watch him operate. So I always thought I'd be a doctor growing up. And other times, when he would say scalpel, Kay McEnroe, John's mother, would hand him the scalpel because he was an operating room assistant in those wow. days. Wow. Kay McEnroe? I didn't know that. Kay, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Kay was a brilliant woman. She was an operating room assistant. And that's why I always thought John was good under pressure because she was good under pressure. She understood it because in her situation, yeah. it wasn't losing a match. They could lose a patient's life. No so question. I, I, I remember Mrs. McEnroe had the best hair in junior tennis uh, at Port. Just the coolest hair, always perfect. And John, of course, did not have this. No, no she was a great lady. Unfortunately, she passed away last year, but a great yeah. lady. Uh, but the other thing was, so I always thought I'd be a doctor. And then I think if I wasn't that, I probably would have ended up on Wall Street, you know, investor banking or private equity or something. Interesting, interesting, yeah. It could have been, uh, yeah. Up there with the big guys, making yeah. the big, yeah, the big money. Not that you're probably doing badly, he's doing, but uh, yeah, he's doing fine now too. All right, last question. Here, here it is. The big, the big, the creme de la creme. If you could wave your magic tennis wand, kind of like being the commissioner, what would you change about the great game? If you would change anything, you know, are there any ideas, any thoughts? You, you could make the great game better. Uh, why? What I'd like to see them do is. Speed up the grass at Wimbledon the way it used to be, so you had to serve and volley. That 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 will help you in your match with Roger. Right. Yeah, that would do that. I'd like to see them uh, probably speed up Australia a little. I mean, the clay is still slow in Paris. <clears throat> that way, you, you you got a little more variation in games because imagine if everyone had to serve and volley, what it would be like right. at Wimbledon because you could stay back on the grass because it would be faster and the balls are faster. Pretty interesting, I think. Yeah, no, Roger even said that at the ATP finals that he felt like the court this year it was faster than previous yeah. courts. I heard him say that. Yeah, no, I heard that too. And also, you know, when he won in Australia, when he came back to win his, his 19th major, they said that year Australia played quicker than other years. They either redone the courts, they put less sand in it, it goes quicker. And depending on, you know, what ball you use, not only what ball you use, not deep ball, it's what felt you use. Well, I grew up in Great there was a guy who used to make the self for the tennis ball for Wilson and Penn. Oh, wow. and interesting. They call me up and they want a fast ball, a slow ball. The thickness of the felt determines if it's faster or slower. So I'd like to see him speed up the ball a little at Wimbledon. Well, I'm uh, Rafa Nadal, uh, Ricky Meyer. I enjoy uh, talking with you, but I do not endorse any of your changes. Uh, all of these are, I, you know, I, 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 I prefer to work hard. I like the longer points. I, uh, I, I don't think I can uh, agree with uh, anything you're saying. I'm sorry, Ricky. <laughs> That's okay. 
opinions. We can uh, disagree, no? Yes. Uh, yes. And, and, ha and have a meal maybe in uh, Mallorca one day, right? <laughs> you, you didn't know you were going to have Andy Murray and Rafael Nadal on, on the uh, podcast with you tonight, no, did you? I'm told I do a good Novak, and I'm working on the Roger, but uh, they're just not ready for prime time yet. Right. Not ready. Sorry. Like on Saturday Night Live, they're not ready for prime time players. Yeah, and I did want to make that that reference that live from New York, it's Ricky Meyer. That's right. And I, I did that on the Instagram, but um, but thank you, Ricky. This has been absolute absolutely a blast hanging with you, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah we were. No, pleasure for me too. Great questions, and it's fun. You know, having like it's like a press conference where you can just. Throwing it out and coming up with the answers quickly. It's fun and I love that. Oh, good. Uh, so good. We, we appreciate you kind of going with us because sometimes, you know, we don't know how people are going to take that, whether they like that kind of stuff or yeah. not. We like it. I have some more other questions also, too. Yeah. We like James Bond. We're, we're Bond friends. Yeah, that's right. Bond? Oh, are you kidding? And he, he spoke to my kids from a young age. I indoctrinated each one. I took them from, you know, the, the first one, Goldfinger, yeah. Dr. No, right up to the end. They, well, oh, I love you got it. two seconds. Okay, which one? Or, or who who do you like? Do you like Sean Connery? Do you like... Uh, is he... okay. I knew it. I, I knew he'd say Sean. Which, which, which movie? See, I like Goldfinger. I'm, I'm a Goldfinger fan, big time. We, we actually, during slams, Ricky, we go five sets, and one of our, one of our sort of segments is... Uh, Craig asks me, like uh, Ark Goldfinger did on the golf course, what does Craig ask Bond? What's that? Uh, uh, what is, uh, what, oh, what's, your, what's your game, Mr. Mr. Bond? Yeah, what's your he, game? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. great, great line from Auric, which yes. I, I, just, I even love the name because right. if you abbreviate the guy's name, it's AU, which is yeah. periodic table of the elements. Uh, it's the abbreviation for gold. A great line in that game also, in that movie also was when Ajak... Yes. Takes the thing and Don goes to him. He goes, you know, club people are not going to like this. He goes, I own the club. <laughs> I own the club. <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. Ricky, I got to tell you, one Halloween I was odd job. I did the the bowler hat and the tie and the yeah, and, and like I, I think I pulled it off a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, Similar. Can, uh, did, did your hat knock people over? Did could you? I would throw it at people and kill people. Yeah. Like a frisbee. <laughs> so well, then last question. Favorite Bond girl? Which which, oh, are, which of the Bond girls? Let's see. Uh, you go classic like Ursula Andress. Andress. Ursula Andress was pretty awesome in her day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Halle Berry. Wasn't Linda Evans one of them? Uh, I think she was one of them. She might have been. Eighties. Uh, the one in, in Octopussy was great. Uh, oh, what's it? I think Maud, Maud Adams. Maud Adams. Maude Adams, good call. Yes, uh, Jim. Adams, she was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, do you, you go Allie like? Berry was pretty good. Who's that? Halle Berry. Yes, oh, that Jinx? was more recent. Yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was. Yeah, her name was Jinx. Yeah, right. Yeah. That was in Die Another Day, I think, two thousand. Ringo's wife. Yes. Uh, Barbara right. Bach. Barbara Bach was. Barbara yeah. Bach? That's yeah, she, right. She Ringo. One of, I'll tell you one other funny story that happened. Tell us. Um, my wife and I went on a honeymoon to Turks and Caicos uh -huh. to the Island Hotel. I forget the name. It's Coho Hotels. They have their own island there. So each day my wife and I go to the gym. Then one day she doesn't go with me. She's at the pool. I walk into the gym. There's no one there except the guy on the treadmill. I take a double look and I go, Ringo? He goes, yeah, the English accent. So I'm looking at Look at him, I go, Ringo Starr. I go, what do I say to Ringo Starr? <laughs> yeah, right. I came up with a great line. I said, I got to tell you, 
You give me more good music to listen to in my lifetime than any man deserves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He started smiling, and we started talking, and we started getting a tendency to do this, so we got this whole discussion. I had this, like, 20-minute talk with Ringo, because I just have to walk in the gym that day. It was funny. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you went to the gym that day. Yeah. <laughs> in the Turks and Caicos. Excellent, excellent. In the Turks and Caicos. Yeah, while on vacation, that's awesome. Of all places, yeah, yeah, to see somebody like that, yeah, yeah, Ringo. Yeah, those guys, man, you just think about the Beatles and all the songs that they put together. It's a a fascinating library of just hit after hit after hit. And, and yeah, no, it's mind blowing. If you think about it, so many different types of music. You know, when they came with Sgt. Pepper's, they having the violins and all the strings to all their music. Yeah. Changed over over the years. I mean, and just so many number one hits. You know. And only like eight years. I think they were just to get together eight years, if I if I'm yeah, correct. Sixty two to about seventy. It was that long. Yeah, maybe seven. Yeah, yeah. It, they were starting to. 63, 64, till about 70. Just, yeah. just the massive amount of that catalog that they have. Yeah. yeah, I think they had over 40 number one hits. I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. Yeah, I was, I was a Beatle fan, and yeah. it was just uh, really interesting to uh, just think. Oh yeah, I forgot about that song. Oh yeah, I forgot about that yeah. song. Oh yeah, that one too. Yeah, they just had. You guys have sort, sort of with, what, what's his name? Who does? Ca- car, oh, James uh, Corden, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the British guy. The one he did with Paul McCartney is fabulous if you haven't seen it. Oh. He goes back to Liverpool. And they, they start talking in the car right there. Yeah, and, and the unbelievable, when he goes back to Liverpool, he goes into this pub that he used to go to, and they just open the curtain, people are sitting there, and there's Paul McCartney with his band playing. And the people just, you know, can't believe that he's at this little pub in Liverpool. Yeah. And then we're good, people are running in from the streets until there are hundreds of people in there. And he plays with all these people. It's a great, it's a great yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, we got to check that out. Yeah, that, that would have been an unbelievable to be one of those guys back at that time. You know, just to go from really relative obscurity to where everybody knows. You can't go one place in the world where... You can't go to the grocery store. You can't go to the mall. You can't go, you know, I mean, and, and it's such a short period of time. Their rise, yeah. the, the, that media, media, you know, rise into stardom would be just unbelievable. You know, probably. It really was. really was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. yeah they, they were just uh, an unbelievable group and just hit it at the right time, basically. But, yeah, yeah. They had, but they had the, the musical chops to put it, put it together, too, with all their, their, their songs. I just can't imagine that catalog. It's hard enough to write one song. But they just had. You guys are one-hit wonders. Who wrote one great song that we all remember? And it's has around forty. Yeah, forty, yeah. crazy yeah. number ones. Yeah, and then then all the other stuff that they had that might have been you know top ten, you know top twenty, whatever. And yeah. just like you know they they just put out some stuff that was just. And then in their own careers, their own solo careers, they put out stuff too. And you're just kind of like, wow, these these guys were. were that's why they're legends. And, yeah, all four really. Ringo yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Certainly Harrison. Lennon, Paul, clearly, yeah. Yeah, he has the Ringo Starr band. I was watching Access TV right. a couple of months ago, and, and they, he had his Ringo Starr All-Star band, and, you know, they play some of the hits, and it was pretty fun watching Ringo and yeah. some of the guys he had in his band. They, they were playing around, around, you know, somewhere. I can't remember exactly where it was, but I've seen him a couple of times on I, I remember laughing my butt off at uh, his character, Atuk, in that movie Caveman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was hilarious. They went to video. They went to a video. Yeah, real it fast. was not critically acclaimed, but definitely amazing for an eleven-year-old uh, watching a movie. That was remarkable. There were some scla- scandally clad women, I think, maybe that had uh, you know, maybe uh, yet another more- reason to love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, Rick, well, Rick, we're taking way too much.
much of your time. Thanks. Rick, thanks. you go to bed and have a great gym session tomorrow, man. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. Thank and you, uh, yes. I want to have you on again one day, and uh, we'll just we'll keep in touch. We'll talk soon, pal, and I'll see you at the next Congress. I appreciate it. It's fun, to, it's fun to talk with you guys anytime. Okay. Well, thanks, Rick. We appreciate that. So I'm going to give the dismount. All right. Uh, take care. Big right. thanks. Take care, Rick. Take care, Rick. All right. Have a good evening. You take too. Care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Season 1, Episode 18 with the great Rick Meyer of At The Net Podcast. Be sure to tell a friend or friends as we like your peeps and hopefully they'll like us. And that's the tennis news as it seems, seems to us. us. Good night from Dallas, Texas, everybody. See you later. Take care. Thank you.